here. Gotta do this. Man, the editing's gonna be interesting. <clears throat> Why is it still that picture? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So, as we discussed, and as we've discussed in the past few weeks, uh, we introduced a study with apologetics. We looked at Kant a couple of weeks ago. We looked at different approaches responding to Kant. Remember, we had fideism, um, presuppositionalism, and exit or, uh, evidentialism, uh, where fideism is basically that leap of faith. Uh, the um, evidentialism is using, um, uh, you know, scientific methods or historical methods uh, to give an evidence uh, for the for the existence of God and presuppositionalism that one is where you presuppose the existence of God in order to come to the conclusion of the, uh, the existence of God and I promised what we were going to do is uh, introduce start looking at what I find to be the most biblical approach and we're going to look at how you know how evidentialism can be used as well I, I'm not against it you know that other method uh, but this one just provides more than evident, but we'll get to that. Um, all of these studies that we're looking at, I need y'all to understand, I mean, and I'm sure you do, but these are all very brief overviews. This is nothing like an exhaustive course at seminary or anything, because I know everybody's level of appreciation for this also varies. And so what I want to do, what I'm, what I'm seeking to do is give you foundational principles and if you want to seek more, then that, I, I, obviously I would definitely encourage you to do so. But these are things that are foundational, and even if you just have these, you'll be, you know, you'll be prepared. You'll be equipped um, to uh, to witness to Christ. Um, but even for your own faith, remember when we introduced this study, I talked about how you know learning all these things and seeking out. Uh, philosoph philosophies and worldviews grounded and solidified my faith. So that's really the purpose of this. Okay. So again, though, these are very introductory, introdu introductory, and not even close to exhaustive. But again, these will be foundational principles, and you can build upon them if you want. And again, I still encourage you to uh, to do that. But so we're we're really going to introduce the classical apologetics, um, and we're going to be looking at this in the next few weeks. What I'm really trying to do also, though, is condense this so that it doesn't last like two months or anything. So, and we'll go, we'll get, you'll see that as we go along. So, the way I like to start is the way Augustine, uh, for centuries, uh, we've been using this approach, but Augustine really de first developed it. Um, it what we're going to look at is slightly tweaked from what he had uh, first initially developed. It's been modified has been added to just based on philosophy since then approaches to apologetics since then as well um, and what uh, Augustine was doing was basically trying to find a sufficient reason uh, for reality uh, you know a, a, a sufficient explanation and so a sufficient reason is basically that which delivers the goods it, it, it does the task uh, that kind of a that kind of a thing and uh, basically the way he did it was a was a process of elimination. We're going to see that. I'm just in introducing this uh, as we go along. So we looked at all of the options. You know, what are what are all the uh, options of explaining the reality as we encounter it? Okay, how what are what are the varying op options? And we start with four 
basic probabilities, okay? And now, okay, so one possible explanation for the, the to explain reality as we encounter it is that it's all an illusion, right? Uh, there are philosophers, there are, there are philosophies that believe that they're all, it's, reality is just an illusion. Or reality is self-created, okay? Or it, reality is self-existent. Or reality is from a being which is self-existent, okay? The illusion is something we're going to look at after all this very briefly, uh, but we, in order to condense it, I, I decided we'll look at uh, illusion today um, or, you know, uh, combating that. Um, so, again, uh, those are the, the four main. Now, I recognize there are different philosophies. There have been different philosophies and theologies and different looks, uh, approaches to apologetics, different um, uh, epistemological frameworks that don't immediately look like they fall under these. But these are four generic, general possibilities that I believe, what, what I've seen, what I've experienced, and what uh, better scholars than myself have experienced is ultimately, whatever worldview, whatever philosophy somebody has, they can ultimately be subsumed under one or more of these categories. Okay, So just at the outset, these are generally the four possibilities um, to explain reality as we um, encounter it. Um, but one of the things I've tried to emphasize, in my opinion, the easiest way to prove the existence of God is the argument that says basically, if anything exists, then necessarily God exists. Now, that's a very abbreviated uh, form of the idea, and what I what I want to do is start developing that for you to really show you how to apply that. But so we're we're gonna see that as we go along in the next few weeks. But at the outset, I want you to know that's basically the the argument that we're heading toward. Okay, there there are many different approaches to classical apologetics, so I'm just kind of showing you one. Okay, this is this is kind of a cosmological. Um, and teleological um, uh, approach. So, and, so, it ne so if anything exists, then necessarily there must be a being who has the power of ex existence in himself. Remember, we were looking at ontology, and we were looking at uh, the uh, aseity of God and all that. Do you remember that? The ontology, and, and so, it's, he has to be, he has to have the power of existence within himself, so self-existent. And what I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize is that if anything exists, there must be, logically, rationally, there must be a self-existent something. We're going to get to that. Um, now, out of, uh, uh, out of these four options, two of them contain self-existence, obviously. Uh, so, the example would be like this book, right? So, one of the, uh, one of the uh, explanations of this book is that it's an illusion, Right? Or it created itself, or it's self-existent and eternal, which we're going to look at, uh, which people think, uh, or ultimately it's from a being who ultimately created it or came uh, from confluence of uh, events from a being who self is self-existent. Um, so again, th those are the options. So to give you a sufficient reason for the book, you know, uh, we're going to look at these four options, two of which, again, have self-existent. Um, 
but again, they would be eternal as I hope to show you. So these are the two possibilities without self-existence. So these are obviously going to be the, the, the first ones we look at to do away with these because ultimately what I'm arguing is if anything exists, necessarily there must be a, a self-existent something, okay? And we're going to get into that um, again in weeks, but we'll look at that a little bit uh, towards the end just before we get to an illusion. Um, so, you know, is reality an illusion? Which people have uh, argued. They're, they're learned, they're very uh, um, intellectual philosophers who believe that everything's just an illusion. We're all part of somebody's dream, all this kind of a thing. So, and we'll look at that. We're going to conclude with that. Um, or is it uh, ultimately self-created? And this is probably 95% roughly of atheists now believe in self-creation as an alternative to divine creation, basically. Okay, So we're going to look at that next week. Um, but then others, they do hold of an eternality of matter. And that goes into the self-existent one. But, um, but uh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you'll usually, especially with the self-created, so you'll, you'll usually hear, like, uh, the Big Bang Theory or different, you know, cosmologies or cosmogonies. Cosmogony is just, so cosmology has to do with, Reality kind of as a whole. It's not just a causal uh, thing. It's not just a rational thing. It's not just a teleological thing. It has all of those. Or cosmogony is basically just the the initial what created uh, everything. Like how did it first start? That's, that's the only difference between those two. Um, again, some small uh, percentage still think to hold still hold to an, the eternality of matter. So these are the two possibilities for self-existent reality. Obviously. Um, uh, is self-exist. Now, at least these people realize that the necessity of a self-existent being, okay? And, you know, at least we're there with those people. Uh, now, I promised you what I was going to do is prove to you that God exists. And all I'm talking about is, you know, this, uh, this self-existent eternal something. And, and that's true. But what I'm trying to do again is to emphasize that if anything exists, if this book exists, there must be a self-existent something, okay? Um, both reason and science demand uh, that, that there must be a self -existent. Now, the character of that person, so whether it's, we, we, we basically have to determine if, uh, if reality, if self-existence does come from a personal, immaterial, uh, good and perfect God, or if it's just uh, matter is eternal, kind of a thing. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, the character of the of this being, though, um, it remains for further discussion whether he's good or bad, uh, all that kind of thing. What we're doing is just proving the existence of this being as we go along. Okay. Again, looking at the different, these two, because uh, remember, when we looked at evidentialism, the problem, so they used e empirical evidence, and remember, we looked at the difference between evidence and proof, right? Evidence gives you a probability, a high probability, where proof settles it, okay? Um, uh, and 
I admit, I do like it, like uh, that that movie. The 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 um, is Genesis history. I mean, I think we should. We I think we can use this approach as well. So I'm not saying we need to throw them all away. I mean, I I, I do use evidentialism sometimes. I think it's necessary. Um, but I just think this one gives you gives you the ultimate. You know, this is this is the one that leaves really without an excuse. Um, so because again. We all know, we've all found that empirical evidence can't ever give us that certainty, that formal truth like you have in math. Like, so that's why I love math, because it's a formal truth. Two and two equal four. They always will. It's not saying that there are two of something or four of something. It's just saying if you have two, of, it's just like the cause and effect thing. It's not even saying there are effects. But if there is an effect, necessarily there must be a cause. It's a, it's a logical, that's why... The law of causality is spawned from the law of contradiction. Remember, that's where we saw that that uh, that it basically, you know, it's not a principle in and of itself. It's just saying again, if there are effects, then necessarily there must be a cause, must be an antecedent cause, which we'll look at as well. Um, so again, we go beyond the level of mere evidence and 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 seek absolute proof. So again, what we're arguing here is that we are we. Are providing actual proof not evidence again that's clear or that that's important uh, now that means I can't start with a book okay because if I start with a book first of all I have to assume that it's not an illusion but it also takes me back into the empirical so it takes me back into the senses I'm left with my five senses remember empirical evidence is basically that which we can find with our senses it's utterly dependent on the senses. And we've seen that, that we need sense perception, but the reliability of sense perception fluctuates. Remember when we looked at the sense perception class? So I can't start with a book. And what I want to sh eventually show you, like we, like we discussed last week, that we, the ultimate starting point for a person's proper epistemology, proper logical framework is self-consciousness, remember? You can't think with somebody else's mind. You can't start with God, like the presuppositionalists, because only God can start with him, right? Okay. So, again, that's why we need to find a point that's of a nat rational nature, which, again, is what I'm suggesting, and what we're going to see is that it begins with self-consciousness. That's going to come in a few weeks. Um, so, again, one last time. What I'm offering you is not just evidence. It's proof. And this is essential. This is essential. Okay, we'll, we'll get before. So, okay, here it is. So, a rational proof that compels a rational person to acquiesce or surrender to that rational proof. I'm going to repeat that. A rational proof that compels a rational person to acquiesce or surrender to that rational proof. Now, before we do that, there's another distinction we have to make that's been made throughout the centuries, but was generally popularized by John Calvin. That's the distinction between proof, which is objective, and persuasion, which is subjective. So proof, again, is something objective. So somebody can give, theoretically, a, an undeniable, just a logically conclusive uh, proof, and somebody can decide they don't agree with it. Like if I were to say, um, if all men are mortal, and if Socrates is a man, 
then Socrates is more, right? Now, if, so, according to that syllogism, it's not even saying Socrates is a man. It's not saying he is mortal. He's just saying, if all men are mortal, maybe not all men are mortal. Maybe you're the first eternal man. Maybe you are. Maybe I am. I don't know. Maybe all are the first eternal beings ever. But, again, it's the syllogism. If all men are mortal, according to these premises, and if Socrates is a man, then necessarily, automatically, there's no ifness to the conclusion. If all men are mortal, and if Socrates is a man, then necessarily Socrates is immortal. Now, I can show somebody that with a syllogism. I can use all sorts of diagrams, Venn diagrams, and do all sorts of craziness, and somebody will not agree. They won't acquiesce to it. So, um, so Luther called this that resistless logic, and that's what we're looking for. Um, but again, I can show that... Um, and somebody could say, for them, uh, for them, uh, reason is no proof of anything. And that leads me to uh, a story given by John Montgomery. And this is going to, after this, we're going to kind of lead into uh, uh, the illusion. So this is going to be a little bit, and I have a bunch of notes. So, but first, the story. So there's a guy named Charlie, right? There's John Warwick Montgomery. He's 91, so I got an older picture because he's looking a little rough these days. Anyway, um, so anyway, there's a story about Charlie, right? Uh, Charlie's wife comes in the bedroom, and Charlie's still asleep. So she wakes him up and says, Charlie, you know, you need to get up. You're going to be late for work. And, you know, he's roaming around. He's like, I can't go to work. She's like, what are you talking about? He says, I can't go to work. I'm dead. And she said, Charlie, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? We're talking to each other. I can see you breathing. You're speaking to me. Get up, quit, stand back and get up, get to work. And he's like, I can't go to work. I'm dead. And dead man can't work, right? So she did the, and she kept on trying. She couldn't get anywhere with him. So she did the logical thing and she called the doctor. The doctor comes and he's checking him out. You know, he gets his stethoscope, gets his readings, checks his pulse and everything. He says, you know, Charlie, you know, I, I, you're, everything's fine. You, you, you're, you're, your vital signs are great. Uh, you've got a good pulse rate. Um, you know, you're, you're perfectly fine. Maybe you're having a bad hair day, whatever. Get up, you know, you need to go to work. You're fine. And the, Charlie says, said, uh, you know, I don't believe in your, your silly stethoscope. I don't, uh, I don't believe in your tools or anything. And I don't trust the, the testimony of this doctor. No, I'm dead. And the doctor just kept on trying, couldn't get anywhere. So he told Charlie's wife, look, you know, you're going to need another doctor. You're going to need a different doctor than the kind of doctor I am. You need to call in the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist comes and he's trying to get Charlie to, you know, understand that he's being delusional. He's obviously alive um, and he's being delusional. So he tries all this stuff, but he comes up with an idea. This, this psychiatrist comes up with an idea. He says, Charlie, I want you to come with me. We're going downtown. I'm going to take you to the morgue. And Charlie's like, why? He's like, I want to teach you something about dead people. Okay. So he's like, okay, cool. He takes him to the morgue and he tells uh, Charlie, you know, there's something about dead people. When, when, when a person dies, their, their heart stops beating. And so they don't bleed. Dead, dead bodies don't bleed. And Charlie's like, wow, no, I never knew that. And he's like, yeah, check it out. So he got a cadaver and, and he got his pin and he's, uh, stuck the uh, toe, and sure enough, 
no blood. And Charlie's like, wow, that's amazing. I never knew that. That's incredible. And the psychiatrist like, you, you, you see, you, you, you understand what I'm saying. You, you know, I'm, you definitely get this. And Charlie's like, yeah, of course. I'm an intelligent man. I mean, I understand. I guess dead people don't bleed. He's like, that's terrific, Charlie. Let me see your, let me see your thumb. You know, Charlie gives him his thumb and he pokes it and it starts to bleed. And, and, and psychiatrist's like, see there, Charlie? What do you think of that? And Charlie's like, well, I'll be dead man bleed after all. You know, because no matter what, Charlie's just not. And we've all run into it. I really love that story because we've all run. I've given some examples of friends. We've all run into people who no matter what you do, no matter how persuasive it is, no matter how just absolute ne absolutely necessary it is, they won't believe. So I love that story. Um, and that's actually what Calvin gets to at the beginning of his institutes. He talks about uh, scripture, um, which he believed to be give objective evidence uh, to stop the mouths of even the most obstreperous, which basically means just a noisy, um, difficult to deal with. Think of it like a rowdy child, so so just stop them too. So that is, you know, in the word of God, the indications uh, for its super for its supernatural origin are plainly there. Um, however, what he was saying is that man is so ill disposed to the things of God that he won't believe. And I submit to you, and I certainly can attest to that, but I submit to you that is the problem we encounter. That's the problem we encounter. Again, the problem with people is not the lack of information. The problem with people is suppressing the truth. That is, so our, our calling is to prove. Our calling is to witness. Our calling is, is to, again, prove God's existence. We are not called to persuade anybody. Only, the, only Christ can do that. Only the Spirit can do that. Only God can do that. Remember, the notitia, the ascensus, and the fiducia. Only God can do the fiducia. But we can give the data and hope they ascend to it. You know, actually ascend to it, not just you know, uh, whimsically and 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 falsely. Um, and so again, there's an enormous amount of stake here, an enormous amount of stake here. Um, one of the reasons people want to get rid of the guy, God hypothesis is because if God really does exist, as we all know, I'm going to be held accountable for how I behave and the life I live. And people don't want that. We're going to see that they'll develop their own sometimes, but that's going to be um, long, long down the road. Um, okay, so we're going to go ahead and move on to uh, look at uh, the illusion. So does anybody have a question regarding that part yet? Because we're kind of doing two and one today. No? Everybody good? Okay. Let's go ahead and look at the first possibility to explain reality that's, that it's an illusion. Again, on the surface, it might seem a colossal waste of time to, to look into this because who's so silly enough to think that this is all, all an illusion? But again, many learned philosophers have, have, uh, have said that, uh, that all reality is basically an illusion and it's not real. Uh, um, so in order to deal with this principle, we are going to bring back an old friend, Rene Descartes. He's the father of modern uh, rationalism. Uh, he's, he was uh, obviously in the 17th century. He was a 17th century thinker who was also a mathematician, by the way. 
if you ever deal with imaginary numbers in college algebra, he came up with that. He came up with a bunch of things. Imaginary numbers are actually really cool. We can maybe talk about that some other time. Um, but anyway, he was much. He was very much concerned with a certain kind of skepticism that he that that was coming into his world. That was kind of approaching the footsteps of Europe, which was following the Protestant Reformation. Because again, then you had a breakdown and, and, and a chasm of authority. You know, so for the for centuries, for the longest time. The church would, would settle disputes. Like if, if you had a dispute, you would go to the church because at, at best, their, their decision was sacrosanct or at least very dependable. And at worst, infallible, which we still see. Uh, but it was still reliable on that. Once, once the authority of the church was, uh, was not attacked, but argued against, you know, criticized, uh, that broke down, and again, remember what I told you: when, when, when certain, when certain revolutions, when certain ideological uh, revolutions, even when they're corrective, often lead to skepticism, and that's what happens here. People are skeptical about authority, including in science. Remember the Copernican uh, revolution that we were talking about, where you know, in the in the seventeenth uh, century, uh, Copernicus was so the old Ptolemaic system that taught that uh, the earth was the center of the uh, uh, solar system existed for um, over a thousand years because it was never criticized it was never looked at it would just go pass on generation to generation and finally copernicus through math they didn't have the telescope then so it was really galileo who showed who invited anyway the priests to come and look under the telescope so anyway all, all that to say that the authority of science also uh, was was fractured, um, and so there wasn't dependability on science either. So there was skepticism within theology and science, and that's where Rene Descartes came in. Uh, so what he wanted to do, oh, I just skipped all through all that. Okay, let's see. <laughs> uh, so he what he was uh, looking for were what he called clear and distinct ideas, ideas that I can't that that are true in and of themselves. Right, so that no matter what I try, have to be true. Okay, so and uh, so ideas which were in, are indubitable and can't be rejected without rejecting reason at the same time, and that's important as we go along. So which ideas though lay the foundation to consider everything else? Okay, so that's what he's looking for. So the process he followed in order to achieve certainty uh, was to follow a plan of uncertainty of pure skepticism, where he decided. What he and we briefly discussed this, but what he decided was he was just going to doubt everything. He went through a rigorous uh, deal journey of just doubting everything. Just so really, it's an epistemological question: Do we really know this is true? Because he even considered, you know, what if what if all of reality, you know, what if uh, there's just this this deceptive being that's always bringing these illusions in front of me and I, I never get a hold of reality. What if it's this? What if it's that? It's just all of these different questions. But he wanted to give everything that, he, that was assumed at that time and even things that he assumed and give them like the second glance kind of a thing. Don't take anything as absolute to go to the basic fundamentals and then work your way up. So what he decided to do was, uh, yeah, okay. Um, and 
I like to do that from time to time. I mean, it was encouraged to me by a guy that mostly introduced all this stuff to me, R.C. Sproul. Uh, but he recommend, and I, I've done this, and I think it's I think it's good practice. So I'll think of like ten things that that I find to be absolutely true, to be absolutely certain, and I'll write them down. Sometimes he said to write them down. I don't really write them down, but I do I do uh, I do go through different criticisms, all the criticisms I can find, because what I don't want to do is believe this because somebody I liked taught them to me, or because you're hearing them from your father. Or your son, or your husband, or your friend. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, just you don't want to take it because because you just like the person. What you want to do is make sure it's true. So what you know is true. So again, one of the things, uh, by the way, which always produced these revolutions. That's how that's how that's how science scientific breakthroughs happen. That's how philosophical breakthroughs happen. That's how uh, theological breakthroughs happen. That's how musicians break through. That's how music changes. All sorts of things to go back to the uh, first principles, basically. And that's how the Ptolemaic system lasted forever because nobody was looking at it. They were just taking it for granted from generation to generation. I, I just want us to never do that. <laughs> you know, that's basically it. Uh, so that's what we need to do to ourselves, is to always investigate our own assumptions. Because uh, like we've seen, like in a court scene situation, right, where you hear somebody's testimony, you know, and, and they're going, going all, and, and by the end of their testimony, you're just convinced. You're convinced that, they're, that they have won the case. And then, all of a sudden, <laughs> the cross-examination starts to happen, and all these other things start happening, and at the end of it, you have no idea. What, <laughs> you have no clue. It's anybody's guessing. So... It's important that we, we investigate our own assumptions that are not always so clear as we like to think that they are. Um, so, okay, let me skip through all this because I already talked about all this. Um, so, okay, after, after we went through this elaborate uh, process, again, so again, what can he know for sure? After he went through this elaborate process, he came to his famous quote, for which he is so well known, uh, which is, Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Uh, so he said, no matter how skeptical he can be, if he doubts everything, if he's just doubting and doubting and doubting, one thing he can't doubt is that he's doubting. Because if he doubts that he's doubting, then he's doubting. Now, you can say, I doubt it, because then you're, but then you're just proving <laughs> that to doubt means you cannot doubt that you're doubting. Okay. And then he went to the next step. What, what, does, what, do, what does doubt require? Well, cognition. Yeah, thinking. Cognition. Cogito. I mean, that's a Latin for That's where, you know, so cognition or thinking. Yeah. Um, so doubt requires a thinker. Now, what does a thinker require? Now, by the way, let's just stop there real quickly too, right? So doubt requires a thinker. So then you get to, well, if I'm thinking... There must be a thinker. But you might say, I don't think so. But again, you're just proving it. <laughs> just like the doubt thing. Okay? Now, um, so, if, so doubt requires a thinker, or, or doubt requires thinking, and thinking requires a thinker. Right? So, I think, I think, cogito, ergo, is therefore, sum, I am. I think, therefore, I am. Now, a lot of people, now what is he assuming? In there, because a lot of people don't 
don't accept this. Uh, what is he assuming here? He's assuming at least two logical principles. The law... Okay, hang on. Let me make sure I'm not skipping anything here. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, so... Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, so what he began... Before we even get to that, sorry. Uh, before we get to that... So what he was doing was he began with the knowledge of his own self-consciousness. So that's going to be kind of a hint. This is kind of a hinting into what I'm, what I'm trying to show you is that you must begin with self-consciousness. And again, we're going to look at that even more throughout the weeks. But this is one first, first kind of introduction, which I really appreciate Descartes doing for me. <laughs> you know? uh, because again, we mentioned last week the presuppositionalist approach where again, you can't start with God. You must start with yourself and the consciousness of yourself. And from there you move um, again because your own mind is the only mind you have at your disposal. Uh, so again, whatever, what Descartes is getting at here is whatever uh, might be in doubt, the fact that I am self-conscious existing person is not in doubt. Yeah, uh, there we go. So I don't have to look at my feet to know I exist. I don't need to, I don't need sense perception to know this. D d do you see that? This is not reliable on the senses. This is, this is reliable on pure reason. You don't, so you don't have to rely on the, the senses, which can be deceiving, right? Okay. Um, yeah, his argument proves that something exists even if it's only our own self-consciousness. Put in, yeah. So, put it another way, uh, if I think this book is an illusion, and it may be, you know, it doesn't say, I didn't say it proved the existence of God. Um, again, I just said, if this book actually exists, then by necessity, God exists, which we're going to look at in the next few weeks. Um, uh, so, again, I don't think it is actually an illusion, but... Um, but again, so what, uh, what is he assuming within there? So law con uh, contradiction and law causality. So there are more, many philo philosophers who don't accept this because they recognize that he's assuming these principles. And so, so they just say that basically, uh, so, because <laughs> they point out correctly that this far, you know, these are the assumptions that he's using. But so... Remember, though, when we looked at these, these weren't any, any rules outside of reality. These are principles that, that, depend, <coughs> that we're dependent on to know reality. Okay, so it wasn't, these philosophers see logic and see these principles as outside of the epistemological framework. Where we see, and I just can't, it's perfectly illogical. It just has no reason whatsoever. These are people bent on making everything illusory, no matter how absurd it is. I'll put it that way. Uh, now, so they, they were rejected, but he's, he's depending on the law of contradiction. When he says, you know, I think, therefore I am. So he's, he knows that if he's using the premises of if I'm doubting, then there, I must be thinking. And if I'm thinking, I must be. That's a logical deduction. And he's also using the law of causality because again, those things are married. The, the law of causality depends upon the law of contradiction. It's basically just, a, just a, an extension of the law of contradiction, okay? Uh, but he is depending on that. But he can, because again, so, um, uh, so 
a lot of people will deny this because they deny so it, like existentialism uh, the the people who believe in existentialism which is something we'll look at but it's an irrational philosophy okay and so they'll say you know uh basically you know he's assuming these and he, this can still exist in if it's an illusion if he's just part of somebody's dream then these are just particular things that so we can in the in the world of an illusion you know these things don't have to be right so he can he can think that and these still these things still don't apply okay and what we're getting at though is basically what they're admitting is that their structure their worldview or their epistemological framework is irrational and when they get to where they they admit that i say we hand them the microphone let them tell the world so we don't have to bother anymore <laughs> because that's all we're getting at Okay, once, once you, first of all, you realize that yours is absolutely rational, and they admit that theirs is irrational, your job is over. You are not called to persuade. You are called to prove. Okay? Is that it? Um, but, again, but again, so I do appreciate Descartes for, uh, um, yeah, I don't want to get into that, for uh, showing that at least he exists. We will look at uh, going from there. Um, moving on. So, any questions? Gave you an illusion. Right. Yeah, oh, they're all blurry. I guess I should look on the TV first. Right. Sorry, that was a little touch. <laughs> no. It does. So is it a diamond or a square? Huh? Ow. Okay, whatever. It's going to be that loud. Alright, so our excerpt for today. Okay. Hmm? Yeah, well I can, but then it turns this volume down. Well, it's turning that down too, but oh well. Alright. <clears throat> okay. Thus I came to understand from my own experience what I had read, how the flesh lusts after the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's in Galatians 5.17. I truly lusted both ways, yet more in that which I approved in myself rather than, uh, than in that which I disapproved in myself. For in the latter, uh, sorry, for in the latter it was not... Uh, now really that I was involved, because here I was rather an unwilling sufferer than a willing actor. And yet it was uh, through me that habit had... through me that uh, habit had become an armed en enemy against me because I had willingly come to be what I unwillingly found myself to be. Who then can with any justice speak against it when just punishment follows a sinner? I had no longer, uh, I, I had now no longer my accustomed excuse that as yet I hesitated to f forsake the world and serve thee because my perception of the truth was uncertain. For now it was certain, but still bound to the earth, I refused to be thy soldier. 
and was as much afraid of being freed from all entanglements as we ought to fear to be entangled. I wanted to go to the next one, but we'll save that for next week. So again, what he's saying is that he, this is again before, this is really starting is as he's going through his conversion, okay? But he's still bent on his former life. You know, he, he, he is coming to the place where he sees all of that as nothing, and he must, you know, all tr the real truth, reality is found only in God, and so he's trying to find that that place, that place of light. That that so he's knocking on the door, kind of a thing, which which Christ implores us to do, and he's seeking him out. But he's also saying, I still love these ways. You know, I'm still I, I still find myself delighting in the things I hate. You know. Hating the things I delight. That kind of thing. And it's just a struggle until... And, you know, even after you're converted, that's a struggle. You know, uh, obeying God and obeying yourself. It's always a struggle. But, again, in God's providence, through His Spirit, and loving God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our souls, we'll see in the next study, um, that causes us to obey. Alright, any questions? I'm just going to take a while to stop the recording because i got to go all sorts of different ways. <laughs> oh, it looks really weird on my screen. <laughs>